chapters of Matthew, we've seen that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah. We see that in, in the first two chapters, he's qualified. And then in chapter three, what we looked at last week, Jesus is confirmed to be the Messiah. And now this week, in the first 11 verses of chapter four, we see that Jesus is tested as the Messiah. As soon as this is over, he will begin uh, the earthly ministry. But there remains one last uh, piece of, of, uh, of the story for Matthew to fill in before he begins the actual ministry of Christ. Following his baptism in chapter 3, Jesus moves into the wilderness. And, uh, and it says there in verse number 1 that he was led up by the Spirit or of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now there's some important details that we need to notice before we jump into the story if we're going to get a proper understanding of what this passage is all about. Now the first fact is here that Jesus was led up by the Spirit, or led up of the Spirit. And this tells us that this was a part of God's plan. That means that Jesus didn't get lost. He didn't take a wrong turn after He walked out of the, the baptismal waters. He didn't get lost in the wilderness like some of us may have done. Uh, Jesus was there uh, because it was God's plan. Uh, the second part of that says that He was there to be tempted. And that tells us that the purpose of His time in the wilderness was for this uh, testing or this temptation by the devil. Even here we see that God is using the devil to fulfill His plan uh, and, and uh, Satan is as, is, is, um, uh, as much a part of God's plan, if you will, as, as anyone. And God uses him, though it be for temptation, to tempt Christ. Uh, he is being used here. But the purpose for Jesus being in the wilderness was because God wanted him to be there. And, uh, and it's important for us to, to keep that in mind, that this was all a part of God's plan. It wasn't an accident that Jesus ended up 40 days in the wilderness. It wasn't an accident that Jesus forgot to pack a lunch for those 40 days. I know of one person that's fasted for 40 days besides Jesus. And, uh, I, and I'm not signing up anytime soon to be, uh, to be that guy. I, I'm, I, I feel like the fast between breakfast and lunch is long enough. And I'm already planning what I'm going to be eating and thinking about how I can break that uh, fast uh, in between meals. But Jesus did that for 40 days intentionally. Then... The fact that the Satan showed up as soon as those 40 days of, of fasting were over, that's not a coincidence either. Uh, and all of this was, was designed and orchestrated by the Father, and we'll see for a very, uh, very great purpose. Now the third detail that we need to observe here in this, in this passage here is, is at the end of verse number two, and it just says he was hungry. That seems like a, a simple detail for us to, uh, to notice, but it's, it's very important because it reminds us Something that we already know, but as we're moving into this story, it reminds us of the very simple fact that Jesus is 100% man. We get that. He's 100% man. After 40 days, as Todd mentioned, you'd be kind of hungry, right? Uh, they, they say, I've never proven it, but they say that after a while, you, you kind of forget the, the pains of hunger. I have no idea what they're talking about. It's kind of like when people say after you run seven or eight miles, it just it, you just break your stride. I don't think so. Uh, I don't believe them. I think it's a pack of lies. And I say that the people that, that fast that long, they're nuts, right? They've just, they've just gone delirious. But uh, they, that, uh, Jesus was 100% man, and it shows us here that he experienced the same kind of human struggles that you and I do. Now, the other part of that, the other side of the coin, that makes it a little bit more difficult for us to, for us to really grasp is that not only is Jesus 100% man, he's 100% God. If Jesus was 50-50, 50% God and 50% man, that would be easy for us to, to, to comprehend. 
Even if Jesus was 99% God and only 1% man, we could, we could put that together and make sense of that. But when we say he's holy this and holy that, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And we try and we wrestle with this, but it reminds us here that Jesus experienced the same kind of struggles that we would have experienced going 40 days, the physical. But when we go into the spiritual aspect, as we see the temptation is to come, God is, God is not bothered by Satan, okay? And as I read through this this week for the hundredth time, I guess, I've read this passage over and over and over again, I realized that I had been reading this passage my entire life one particular way. And it dawned on me, I've been reading it wrong this whole time. If you're like me, maybe, and you don't have to admit it because I'm the only one, I'll just admit it, I'm the only one that, 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 that reads with a lack of faith, okay? The rest of you, you're, I'm catching up to you, but if, just in case you're like me, don't raise your hand because I don't want you to feel bad like I feel bad right now and confessing my own sins. I've always read this passage kind of rooting for Jesus to make it. Like, oh, Jesus, please don't give in. Don't be tricked. It's a trap. Jesus, don't. You know, like when you're watching a movie and you're like, don't go. Don't separate from the group. Uh, don't don't go into that dark room. There's a murderer there. There's a bad thing there. Don't, don't, don't go out in the water. There's sharks. Can't you hear the music? It's changing. It's bad. And I've always kind of read this passage like that. Like, like Jesus, come on, hold it together. You can make it. And, and, and I'm rooting for him to win. But the fact that Jesus is 100% God says that there's no need to worry about Christ. The fact that Jesus walks into the desert as 100% God means He's going to win. The Father was not sitting up in heaven like, like some dad sitting in the bleachers watching his son hoping he would perform well. The Father wasn't worried that He would last and that His Son would make it. Uh, Jesus wasn't worried that he would make it because Jesus is God. And as such, James tells us, God cannot be tempted with evil. And and so uh, Jesus was there. And though he struggled physically like you and I would have struggled physically, he did not face that challenge the same way that you and I would have. We would have faced it like, oh, my goodness. You know, if, if one of you or, or me or, or maybe the best Christian that we know were to go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, man, we'd be praying all night for him and hoping and really not surprised if they if they failed, if they if they finally the devil finally got him. And we'd say, well, you know, it'd been 40 days and, and he hadn't eaten anything. He was weak and he wasn't thinking straight. And the devil was just so tricky. And we don't have to worry about that with Jesus. I know you've already read the rest of the story and you know how it turns out. But every time I read it until I read it this week, I realized. I don't have to worry about it. Jesus has got this under control. In fact, I remember who this is now as I read through the story from the beginning, as I try to separate myself from the knowledge of what happens at the end. I read it and I say, you know what? This is not man versus devil in the wilderness. This is God versus Satan in the wilderness. And when I read it like that, it makes, uh, there's, okay, this is not gonna, this is not gonna be a problem at all. This is creator versus creation. I don't worry about that. In fact, as Jesus walks into the wilderness, there's no contest. This is not going to be, this part of it is not going to be a struggle for Christ because He's God. Now, the struggling through the 40 days of fasting, I believe that was difficult. But these three temptations that we read about here, I don't think that was that as difficult as we make it out to be. Let's give Jesus a little bit more credit for, uh, for what He's about to do. But He walks into the wilderness knowing what Satan would do. He walked into the wilderness knowing what He would do. And he walked into the wilderness knowing that he would win. So Satan comes with his first challenge there, and verse number three calls him the tempter. 
And it says if he says his first challenge here is basically if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And Satan is taking advantage that Jesus is hungry. And Satan wasn't doubting who Jesus was. When he says if you're the son of God, he's not saying, well, let's let's see if you are the son of God. He's not doubting that God, that Jesus is the son of God. He knows the truth. What he's doing here is that he's trying to he's challenging Jesus to prove that he's the son of God by meeting his own physical needs. In other words, he's saying, if you're God, help yourself. Very similar to the taught that the crowds uh, threw at Jesus when he was on the cross when they said, if you're the son of God, come down from there and save yourself. If you're God, why would you go through this? And that's what Satan's saying to Jesus here. If you're God, why would you fast for 40 days? You could make food and, and finish this if you're God. Prove it. Let's not forget this. Jesus could have created food on day one. Jesus didn't have to miss any meals. He could create a, a five-course dinners every day of the week that he was in the wilderness. There was no reason. For, it wasn't like Jesus was like, oh, you're right. I could have been doing, I could have been eating this whole time. Jesus could have done more than bread with those rocks. He could have turned it into something like a steak. He could have turned it into whatever he wanted. He's God, right? Satan's not doubting Jesus' ability to turn this into bread, but Satan's trying to get Jesus to prove that I can, I'm the son of God. Let me show you. I'm going to turn it into bread. I'm going to eat some right now. But see, Jesus recognizes this and he doesn't fall for it. And the fact that Jesus first didn't have any food for 40 days and the fact that Jesus didn't fall for this particular challenge should grab our attention. It's not wrong to eat. It's not wrong. Would it have been wrong for Jesus to eat bread? Outside of this situation, it just a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a random situation, was it wrong for Jesus to eat bread? No. But there is something behind this, and Jesus sees it. We need to make sure that we see it uh, as well. Uh, th- and this is why it was considered temptation for Satan to offer Jesus to make bread. See, for Jesus to create food would have meant that he was stepping outside of the Father's plan. If you've been going through the, uh, I suggested a devotional, uh, an online devotional, it's in the bulletin this week uh, as well. Uh, but if you've been reading through that, then uh, you probably read this uh, in, uh, when it talks about chapter 4. It says, to seek sustenance contrary to God's appointment would repeat the mistake of Israel, who was similarly tested for faithfulness and disobeyed when they grumbled and refused to follow the Lord's direction when he sent manna from heaven. And we see this in Jesus' response when he responds to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, as telling us that he's quoting some other passage, man shall not live by bread alone. He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, if you take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I want you to leave your place in Matthew 4, leave a place in Matthew 4, and and, and hold a place in Deuteronomy, because we're going to come back to this. All three of Jesus' responses come from three chapters. Deuteronomy, uh, between well, it's actually two chapters, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. So I want to read for you and just help, help you to make sense. But I want to know, I want you to know why Jesus particularly quotes these passages. Was Jesus saying that bread is evil when he said, don't live by bread alone? No, because as soon as Jesus left the wilderness, you know he stopped by the first restaurant and had him something to eat. Or maybe after the temptation was over, he created something. I don't know what Jesus did, but he didn't fast for his entire life. There was a reason for this fasting, and there was a reason that, uh, that, uh, that he gives these verses to us. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's really the entire chapter, which we won't take time to read this morning. But I want to just point out some verses. And this this afternoon or this week, go back through and read Deuteronomy 8 and get the full uh, understanding of what God is telling His people here through Moses. But I'm going to read verse number 1. 
all the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that ye may live and, and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. So you, you understand what's going on? They're, they're about to go into the promised land and God's giving them a, a pep talk here. And thou shalt remember, verse 2, all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. Notice that. He allowed you to hunger. Why? And fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And, and in this chapter, God is expressing to his people that he wants them to rely on him for provision. And God wants them to look to Him for their every need. That's why He led them through a wilderness where there was no food. There were no restaurants. There were no farms and groves and, 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 and orchards and places for them and fields for them to harvest. And they constantly were moving around in a barren wasteland so that when they needed something, they knew it would come from God. Later on, in the following verse, He, he talks about how during that time, He took care of their clothes. He took care of their shoes. Uh, later on, he says that he took care of, of, their, of their danger, protecting them from danger in verse 15. And, and, and in food and water, when there was none to be found, he, he miraculously provided these things for them in verse 15 and 16. Now, we understand that the 40 years in the wilderness were a punishment, right? They, God did not uh, want them to spend 40 years in the wilderness, but because they disobeyed and would not go, that turned into 40 years. But what we read here is that not only is this 40-year uh, wilderness wandering a time of punishment, it's a time of testing. And God wanted to show His people a lesson that they needed to learn for the promised land. He tells them here that if they would learn this lesson of learning to depend on God in the tough times, they could carry that with them into the promised land because they were headed to a place that it is described as flowing with milk and honey. Basically, it's saying that it had everything that they wanted and more. These are people that had never lived in a home, in a house. These are people that had never had land to belong to them. These were people who knew nothing except slavery and wilderness wandering. And they had nothing. And God was taking them to a place that was going to have everything. And He wanted them to, for, to remember who took care of them this whole time? Because he did not want them to forget who would take care of them in the next time, in the promised land. And that's what God is trying to, to get across to his people here. And that's what Jesus is bringing up to Satan. And, he's, and his response means this. Trust in God's Word. Don't step outside of it to have your needs met. Man will live by God's Word. And Jesus recognized that the challenge and the fact that he was fasting for 40 days was much greater than physical food. It was about something much more than physical food. You remember when Jesus was at the, at the well with the woman of Samaria and, he had, and the disciples had gone into town to buy bread and he came back and, and they said, Master, you need to eat. And he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. That's the same idea. There's something greater going on here than just bread, than physical food. And man lives by God's Word. It doesn't mean we eat God's Word and we fast and we never eat food. But he's saying that there's something more than physical needs. And to step outside of that and for Jesus to create the food would have said, God, I don't believe that you can take care of me. I will do this myself. And, he, and, and that's why he wouldn't do it. 
In the second test, we go back to Matthew 4. Don't, don't lose the spot here, Deuteronomy. It'll take you too long to find it again. But if you want to go back to Matthew 4 and see the second challenge, it says that uh, Jesus, Jesus was taken to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple there, and Satan basically says, jump. A stupid challenge. Really, it's a pointless challenge. It wouldn't, wouldn't help anything. Uh, some would say that it was at least 300 feet high. I was doing, doing a little research this, this afternoon, or this week, I mean, and uh, found out the steeple here in our church is about 98 feet from the ground to the top. So multiply that times three, and you got a pretty, pretty big, you know, pretty big jump. Uh, big Ben is 300 feet tall. Uh, the uh, uh, the Statue of Liberty is 300 feet tall, and Satan is suggesting jump from that height and and see what happens if you're the Son of God. And then he quotes from a passage in Psalms that says what we read there that the angels will catch you; they won't let you fall, and you'll land on harm. Why would Satan offer that uh, as a challenge to Jesus? And I think here what Satan is trying to do is to get Jesus to prove that the Father would be faithful to His Word. But the problem with this is that the Father is not on trial. The Father is not the one being tested. The Son is being tested in the wilderness. And Jesus spots this as well and doesn't fall for it. And though Satan did not misquote the Scriptures, he misinterpreted the Scriptures or misapplied the Scriptures to mean something very, very different than what God meant. And though the passage, we won't look in Psalm 91 right now, but you can read that again. It's Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Though the passage of Psalm 91 does talk about God's protection of His people, and that's exactly what it's, it's delivering them from danger, the whole passage, the context of the whole psalm is to trust in God. It begins with, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, and, and dwelling in the shadow and the refuge of God's wing. And that's what Psalm 91 is about. Looking to God for protection and refuge, not about testing him and trying to force his hand into proving himself to you and to us. Notice what Jesus said. He says, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Now, Jesus is not saying, and I always read it this way until I read it a little bit more carefully. Uh, he's not saying, you shouldn't be tempting me. I'm the Lord your God. He is saying that to do so would be my tempting of the Lord of the Father. And uh, so we go back to Deuteronomy, and we see in chapter 6 what he meant there. If you want to flip back there, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Jesus, is, and Jesus is saying here that, that to do so would be to tempt the Father. And he quotes here from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. I'm going to back up to verse 14 so you see a little bit about what's going on. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Masa. This Masa is a reference all the way back to Exodus 17. Okay, and this, and, and so Jesus is referring back to what uh, Moses told the people here in Deuteronomy. Moses is referring back to what happened to Israel back in Exodus 17. And, and the story there is when Israel had no water. And they, and they complained and they, and they threatened to kill Moses. And they were, well, why'd you bring us all the way out here from, the, uh, from Egypt to, to kill us out here in the wilderness by lack of thirst, or lack of water? And you're gonna, we're gonna die of thirst out here. And the word masa means complaining. It, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a time of Israel's history that they should not be proud of. And that was when God miraculously provided water for them. And, uh, Jesus is reminding them though, but their complaining was a tempting of God's ability to take care of them. But see, God, just like with the bread, God allowed His people to be thirsty for a while so that they would learn to look to Him for their every need. And once again, Israel failed the test. 
by complaining. In fact, if you read Numbers 14.22, God says that you failed the test ten times. Ten times I tried to get you to learn this lesson and you failed the test. And Jesus was saying that to put God to the test is to tempt Him. And it is to mistrust His Father. And unlike Israel, Jesus would not do that. We look back at the final temptation that Jesus uh, that uh, Jesus uh, uh, is faced with in uh, in Matthew four. Uh, Satan brought Jesus to the top of a mountain, and he said, uh, "Look out at all the kingdoms of the world and and the glory of the of those kingdoms." And he says, "I'll give all of this to you, and all you've got to do is simply fall down and worship me." And what Satan was doing was offering Jesus a shortcut to the glory and the reign and the honor that the Father had ordained for Him. But here's the thing. God's plan was that Jesus would obtain these things, this kingdom, this glory, through suffering, through humility, through the cross. And Satan's offer here was to get what he thought was what God was going to give him, but without all of that. All the perks, without any of the suffering, without any of the difficulties. And Jesus replies with two statements. Every time I read this, I, I, I at least smile. Sometimes I laugh because I read this and I see Satan as this nuisance to Jesus. The first thing, what's he say? If he hence, get out of here, go away. And I read this, I see like he's like this pest, like a little brother, just like get out of my room. He's just a pest. Jesus could have told Satan to leave at any time, and Satan would have had no choice but to leave. But Jesus kind of tolerates his presence. Until this challenge, this tempting, this testing is finished, and now that it's complete, and the Satan is worn out as welcome, Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. He's done. I passed. Move on. And he does. But the second part of his statement is a quote from Deuteronomy 6 as well. And this, uh, this is the, the, the passage here where, where we already kind of read the, the, the second part of it. If you go back, we're going to read the first part of it, and we begin in verse number 10. It says, and it shall be when the, the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest the Lord, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. And he says there, ye shall not go after other gods. And what God was trying to remind them, very similarly to what he reminds them two chapters from this, is that you are going to go into a place and you're going to find, like, it's all, it's a pre-decorated house. You're going to go in and it's going to have the best of everything. You won't have to do anything. You're going to walk in, you're going to have a house that wasn't built for you. You're going to have fields and you're going to enjoy that, that harvest that you didn't even plant. You didn't have to weed. You didn't have to do anything. And he says, be careful because when you go into that situation, there's going to be a test to get God. And there are false gods in the land, these people, because remember, the people had to be removed. And there were gods of these, these false gods of these people. And he says, be careful that you don't forget the one true God who brought you all the way from the beginning, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you for 40 years in the wilderness, who brought you into this land, who prepared this land for you. I did it all for you. Don't forget who brought you here and don't uh, move on to other gods. And unlike Israel, who eventually repeated and repeatedly forsook the Lord, for false gods, Jesus would not trade the true worship of the true God for instant and painless glory. Now, all three of these temptations 
you want to go back to Matthew 4. All three of these temptations were an attempt to do one thing. There's one big theme in all of these temptations, and that is to get Jesus to focus on himself and to step outside of the Father's will. To step outside of the Father's plan and operate independently. But Jesus didn't fall for it. When Satan said to him, satisfy your physical desires outside of God's plan, follow your own plan, Jesus said, seek God's will over personal desires and needs. When Satan said, force God to act inside of your plans, Jesus, make God fit into your plans, Jesus answered, trust in God's timing and wait for him. When Satan said, jump ahead of God's plan, there's an easier way. Do God's will, but in your way. Jesus responded with, seek to serve and worship God instead of seeking personal glory. Now there are a a million lessons that we can pull out of this passage. Uh, We're going to look at several of them tonight. But I want you to understand the main purpose. The main thrust of this passage is we put it all together with what we've been studying and what we're going to study as we get through the book of Matthew. The main purpose of this passage is for us to see that in temptation, Jesus trusted and obeyed His Father and lived in perfect harmony with His Father's plan. This account here reveals that by remaining faithful in testing, Jesus proved He is the Son of God, He is the new Israel, and He's what Paul calls the second Adam. Where Adam failed in the garden, Adam, don't eat the tree and you'll live. And he failed. Jesus succeeded. Where Israel failed in the will in, 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 in their lifetime, in their in that, that corporate lifetime where God said, Keep the law perfectly and you will live. And they couldn't because they're sinners. Jesus succeeded. Richard France wrote, Jesus' faithfulness in testing proves he is the true Israel, the Son of God through whom God's redemptive purpose for His people is now at last to reach His fulfillment. Thus Jesus proved that He is the Son of God, not by yielding to temptation, but by submitting to His Father's will. See, Satan was there, as I said, to try to get Jesus to prove He is the Son of God with His, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God. And Jesus would prove that He is the Son of God, but not that way. He didn't prove it by exerting His own power. He didn't prove it by showing how strong and how capable he was of doing things on his own. He proved he's the Son of God by yielding to the Father's will and by submitting to the Father's will and saying, you know what? Man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word of God. We don't tempt the Lord our God. and We only worship the Father. We only serve Him. In our own times of testing, we should follow the example of our Savior and Trust in God's provision and His timing and His methods. But when we inevitably fail, as we do so often, let it remind us of the One who never fails. The One who took all our failures upon Himself and faithfully carried them to the cross. And it is through His faithfulness that we find salvation and forgiveness and a chance to live a life that pleases God. Praise God who brought us this as, as Paul says, this unspeakable gift. Let us be thankful for the one who through faithfulness brought it to pass.